Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Storming out, President Trump refusing to tackle infrastructure spending with the Democrats until the investigations stop. Playing the long game, the U.S. government looks set to subsidize firms hurt in the battle over Huawei's technology and Tesla's tumble. More high-profile analysts raising concerns, the stock being sold pre-market. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. first move once again. Well, I can tell you trade gloom is permeating the global markets, I think. I think I've had enough of giving you some of the signs of rhetoric that we've seen over the past few days. What about the real economic spillovers that we're seeing right now? Well, look no further than Europe. The data there weakening, and that's really setting the tone this morning. Take a look at U.S. futures at this moment. We are lower off some 1% for the Nasdaq, too. Adding to yesterday's weakness, though, I will point out we did end the session off the low. So interesting price action going on here too. In aggregate, the S&P and the Dow trading pretty flat since Monday. On the month though, down some 2.5%. The Nasdaq really feeling it though, down 4% so far this month. Lots of names within that worse. Apple down 7, Qualcomm down almost 10, Micron, the chip makers of course, front and centre down 15. As we've been saying all week, something material has changed in these trade negotiations or non-negotiations. I'm not sure we're getting that right, even with what we've priced right now. Over in Europe, Germany in particular, it's a sea of red, but Germany under pressure off over one and a half percent. Ten-year yields in Germany also falling further into negative territory. Noises of woe across Europe from the survey data, but German business activity and confidence taking a hit. Let's add some more salt to the wound. Why don't we? The latest European Central Bank minutes out today showing policymakers concerned that that second half bounce that a lot of people were hoping for here simply might not happen. Over in Asia, Asia stocks ending at the lowest level in four months. We know currencies have been bearing the brunt of the trade concerns for a while. To add to the noise, the eye-opening display, as I mentioned, of what we can only call policy paralysis from Washington, D.C. yesterday. President Trump refusing to work on an infrastructure plan with the Democrats while the array of investigations are going on. You can't imagine what the Chinese are thinking 
of U.S. politics right now. What was that quote that I gave you yesterday talking of rhetoric from the editor of China's Global Times? Americans are about to have a nervous breakdown. Hmm. Let's get to the drivers because uh, Joe Johns joins me from the White House. Joe, I don't think anybody really believed that we would see an infrastructure spending bill coming anytime soon. But what was that display yesterday? It was an extraordinary display, Julia, I can tell you that. Uh, highly unusual even for this White House. But you're right. The idea of a $2 trillion infrastructure program probably sim- was not going to happen simply because there were a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill, including um, also, by the way, the president's chief of staff, who was a budget hawk when he was on Capitol Hill, all saying a $2 trillion proposal for infrastructure was simply a non-starter. But what clearly happened here is the president went into this meeting with the Democrats from Capitol Hill. He had just heard the Speaker of the House announced on television that, in her view, the president was engaging in a cover-up. He came out to the Rose Garden in what appeared to be a pre-planned speech that the journalists had only been told about shortly before. And he railed against the Democrats. Their investigations suggested he wouldn't work on infrastructure. There was an inference there that he might not be able to work with Democrats on other important issues that must come through the Congress this year. And then he left. So today, here at the White House, the question is, what will the president work with the Democrats on? Just a few minutes ago, Sarah Sanders, the White House press secretary, was out here and she said that the president would work on a number of administrative initiatives, particularly on the budget. And we also know that uh, as far as China goes, which you mentioned at the top, Sonny Perdue, the agriculture secretary, was out here a little while ago and he said, that some type of uh, program was anticipated that would provide something like $16 billion for farmers in the United States who have been hurt by the continuing trade war with China. So it sounds like they're trying some workarounds, not clear how far they're going to go on legislation uh, unless the Democrats, however unlikely on Capitol Hill, decide to end their investigations, Julia. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Innocent or otherwise, making policy in this kind of environment has to be tough for this government. And particularly at a time when you have to show a united front to the rest of the world, if you are tackling them on issues like the Chinese intellectual property theft, US politicians are kind of undermining each other right now. Do you think it makes a deal more or less likely? Because this is one thing that unites them. Even Chuck Schumer himself has said taking a firm stance here against the Chinese is the right thing to do. Well, I can tell you that this administration is a precedent-setting administration. They've thrown out the playbook in many ways. But on balance, if you look back to history, a variety of presidents have worked through a number of investigations, including Richard Nixon, who was... Uh, under investigation in an impeachment inquiry. Bill Clinton, same thing. Obama and Reagan, to a lesser extent, all of them had investigations going on and they continued to do the business of the country in one way or another. And they continued to uh, work with the Congress on issues they could come together on. So the question is whether this president will do the same thing or if we will see uh, what is de facto uh, a government shutdown until the investigations are over, however uh, difficult that could be on the country, Julia. Yeah, and a problem for the economy, too, if that means a suspension of uh, 
an ability to reach a deal on trade. Joe Johns, thank you so much for that. All right, sticking with this theme, of course, because as Joe mentioned there, support for farmers, also potential subsidies for tech firms caught in the crossfire between the crackdown on China's Huawei 2 and the technology there. This, as more global networks, including the likes of Vodafone now, suspending business with uh, Huawei and orders. Samuel Burke joins me now. Samuel, as you and I discussed uh, before the show, just continuing to count the cost here of the trade war. Yeah, costs for American consumers, for companies. Interesting because now there's a proposal in the U.S. Congress to actually set aside $700 million of U.S. taxpayer money to help those rural carriers in the United States that have become so reliant on using Huawei's technology, especially their plans for 5G technology. So this bill would make it so they can't use that technology, and then that money goes to help them remove that and replace it with other technology. I just want to put up on the screen for your viewers the market share when it comes to 5G equipment because there is no natural American successor. All of those names that you see there are either Asian or European. You don't see one American company in there, although Intel does have some of that space, but nothing significant as you see there. So this would indicate that it would be for national security reasons, maybe in the short term, but maybe in the long term, an American company might want to get in that game, though we've seen no sign of that whatsoever. I do just want to note that just a few moments ago, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, telling one of the financial news networks that using Huawei is like putting your information in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. I'm not so sure that he's ever put it that bluntly, but this, of course, is the heart of their argument. That's never been proven, at least publicly, though plenty of experts agree that this is a real possibility, given that data law that requires companies to hand over data to the government in 2017. It was uh, went into effect in China. Yeah, and increasingly hard to see a carve out for this company, even in the event of some future trade deal, given the the rhetoric that we're seeing right now. How do you suddenly decide that this is no longer a risk, given how much weight you've put behind it? Interesting comments from Huawei, too, overnight saying, look, in light of what we've seen from Google and them having to restrict their operating system and apps, Huawei could have their own operating system up and running by the end of this year. How useful is that when we're looking at Huawei's international business? Are those consumers going to operate under a Huawei operating system? I'm not so sure. Never underestimate Huawei. I remember when people said they were just copying and then all of a sudden they leaped ahead of Apple's phones. I think it's really important to look at this new operating system that they're proposing in terms of China. That's, I think, a real possibility. And they're saying just for the Chinese market, they could have the operating system ready by the third quarter of this year. The issue here is internationally they're saying that operating system wouldn't be ready until the following year for all the other markets. But listen, even though I say don't underestimate China and Huawei, you also have to look at the history here. This is a, an attempt that has been done by many companies to have their own app store, their own operating system, and it hasn't worked. Not even for BlackBerry, which for all intents and purposes really invented the smartphone. And even now when you see a BlackBerry, that's actually an Android system. It hasn't played out that well for Microsoft either and their app store. So to create a whole new environment in it of itself is hard, but to get everybody into that ecosystem from Uber to Deliveroo, all of the apps that would need to be on on there, I mean, every app that you use now would need to buy into the system and re-engineer. That is a huge feat. Such a great point. BlackBerry, Microsoft, although I have to say I do miss my BlackBerry, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> Samuel Beck, I know, I know, old habits die hard. Samuel Beck, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver. Tesla 
stock down some three and a half percent pre-market. Key bulls or former bulls like Morgan Stanley, Gene Munster over at Loop Ventures weighing in here and raising fresh concerns. Paul and Monica joins me now. There's been a sort of cascade effect since the latest results from Tesla. More and more analysts going, at least in the short term, we're seriously worried right now. And some of them raising concerns about Chinese demand here, too, in light of the trade war. So another victim there, too, Paul. Yeah, there are big problems at Tesla right now, and Wall Street has grown increasingly bearish, Julia. You've seen analysts like uh, Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas, who used to be a big ball in the company, saying that in a worst-case scenario, shares could fall all the way to $10. Citi's a little bit more optimistic, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek, saying that in a bear-case scenario, maybe the stock goes to 36 That's clearly also a big drop from current levels. But you look at Loops Gene Munster, he's worried about the impact of the China trade war on Tesla. And then Dan Ives from Wedbush, who I know you're going to have on the uh, show a little bit later, he's talking about, you know, that the uh, storm clouds are getting darker for Tesla. He used to be a very big bull on Tesla as well. Yeah, it's a huge sentiment shift all of a sudden. As I mentioned, a cascade effect. And it'll be interesting to get Dan's take on this. You know, when we start to hear the nervousness about Tesla and we've been through these periods before, I think, in the past, particularly around that going private tweet, we talked about the possibility of them being bought by somebody like Apple, like Amazon, if the technology is that good. What do we make of this? Yeah, I, I struggle with the notion that Elon Musk would ever want to sell Tesla. I mean, yes, at some point, the cash concerns and the uh, debt level that they have could make an acquisition more palatable for a company like Apple or Alphabet or maybe even a big auto company uh, in the U.S. or around the world. But I don't see Elon Musk cashing in on Tesla. I don't see Musk working for someone else at a larger firm. Really, I think unless it gets to the point where he gets so bored with Tesla and decides to go all in on SpaceX and the Hyperloop, the boring company that he's uh, working on, it doesn't strike me as uh, you know, a rational idea for an investor to buy Tesla because they think this is an acquisition target. I just don't see it happening. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? ARK Invest, of course, Kathy Wood, who's been on this show many times too, they made their model free access yesterday to say, guys, plug in some numbers. We remain bulls here. So we're going to be debating that later on in the show too. For now, Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. 29 tornadoes have been reported in the U.S. states of Missouri and Oklahoma in the last 24 hours, according to the National Weather Service. In Missouri's capital, Jefferson City, a violent tornado caused heavy damage and three people were killed during storms in another part of the state. Many others remain trapped in the wreckage of their homes. At this moment, voting is underway for the European parliamentary elections as people in the UK and the Netherlands take to the polls. Over the next four days, hundreds of millions of people within the 28-member union will have the chance to vote for a new parliament in the EU. Meanwhile, in the UK, there's growing speculation that the end of May will come at the end of May. The pound is sliding again under pressure as the uh, Prime Minister's pressure intensifies. A senior cabinet minister quit 
after Theresa May's latest Brexit plan opened the door to a potential second referendum. Nina Dos Santos joins us now from London on this story. Nina, just bring us up to speed because we did see the intensification of pressure. We also had that high-profile 1922 committee meeting later on in the UK yesterday and we spoke to one of their members. What happened there too? Well, what we're hearing, Julie, is that uh, overnight, at least yesterday evening, uh, a lot of the political reporters in the United Kingdom were saying that there had been a secret ballot of members of that powerful backbench committee, the 1922 committee, that essentially decides the fate on who runs the Conservative Party and therefore would be Prime Minister when they're in office, um, and that the secret ballot has been held, that the ballots have been kept in sealed envelopes, and that Theresa May, we know she's set to meet with the chairman of that 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady on Friday. Uh, the logic here that is circulating as yet unconfirmed is that if she does not go on Friday, well, then they would unseal these ballots and that could prompt a vote of no confidence or at least be seen as a de facto vote of no confidence. Confusion abounds here, though, Julia, I have to be honest, because the reality is, is that according to the current rules of the Conservative Party, Theresa May has already faced one vote of no confidence and won it over the last 12 months. So in theory, she should be safe in her seat until at least the month of December. But, uh, boy, she's had a wild ride so far. And at the moment, she's still holding on, despite the fact that late yesterday evening, we also saw one of her key cabinet ministers, Andrea Leadsom, a Brexiteer who was the leader of the Commons. She resigned, saying she could no longer support Theresa May's new version of her Brexit plan. Julia? Every day of these negotiations and back and forth is a day lost in working out what the heck the country does next. Capital Economics overnight came out and said the probability of every option here, an election, a no-deal exit, whatever it is, a second referendum, all rise here. What happens afterwards? How long does it get for the Conservative Party to find another leader and to move on here? Yeah, well, we've got to be careful about what we say at the moment today, obviously, because it is a day when the UK is going to the polls. Voters in the UK and in the Netherlands are voting as part of the European parliamentary elections. And as such, uh, any kind of speculation over the positioning of these parties is uh, off limits. But whatever the outcome is, obviously that will uh, also have a significant outcome on the direction that Brexit takes. Now, in the meantime, what we know is that uh, the planned Brexit vote that was earlier floated earlier on in this week when Theresa May gave a speech, slightly uh, changing her Brexit stance as she prepares to bring this withdrawal agreement uh, over to Parliament to vote for on a fourth time, that was supposed to take place on the 3rd of June. It appears as though that has been pulled. So the next round of voting again is in disarray in terms of the time frame. And as you pointed out, yet again, each time we've seen the opportunity of a second referendum bubbling up, it appears to go away. A hard Brexit bubbling up, that goes away. Now we could be into leadership territory and potentially, as you said, a new election. Julia? Yes. The three word answer though, is that not anytime soon. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, still ahead, facing a grilling, McDonald's workers take their beef with management out onto the streets as activists turn up the heat at the company's AGM. And staying grounded, regulators meet to decide the fate of Boeing's 737 MAX jets, but the plane's next takeoff is likely to be further delayed. Stay with us. You're watching First Move.
Welcome down. Welcome back to First Move Down on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And we are counting down to what looks like more losses for uh, the U.S. equity markets at this moment. The Nasdaq under most pressure at this stage. Also, Europe, the handover was weak with the ECB warning. Perhaps that we won't see a recovery in the back half of this year. That's adding over in currency land to some dollar strength. Remember, we were talking yesterday on the show about the weakness in Asian currencies as well. The uh, uh, pressure that we've seen on those all currency pairs related to uh, what we're seeing in terms of the trade deal or the non-trade deal. Are we still too complacent? Lisa Charlotte, the Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Stanley, while the management joins us now. Lisa, always a pleasure to have you on the show. You've been warning about complacency about the trade deal for a while and perhaps we don't get it. I mean, it's kind of coming to fruition here. Well, look, I think we're at a point where both sides feel that they have the wherewithal to wait out a little bit of a standoff. Exactly. Um, you know, so in the United States, clearly, you know, President Trump feels like he's got enough economic strength and enough uh, consumer and business confidence behind him. The markets are holding up, you know, and he wants to wait for his deal. On the other side of it, I think, you know, Chinese policymakers feel like, wait, we're in a recovery. We just inserted about $250 billion worth of stimulus. Um, and we're not prepared um, to just cave right when our economy is beginning to rebound as well. I know it's dangerous to talk in aggregate about these markets because when you look beneath the surface, particularly at some of the big tech stocks as well, we've seen far greater pressure than we've seen um, in absolute terms. Do you think we can make fresh record highs here in stocks while we don't see a trade deal happening? Uh, I do not. No. I do not. So fundamentally, from where I sit, um, I think that the markets are really going to stall out here. Um, I think as we get into uh, the end of the second quarter and into June, people are going to have to start talking about those earnings estimates again for the quarter. And I just don't think the fundamentals, in fact, are all that strong. Uh, Yesterday's U.S. retail sales results from some of the players, I think, is indication of that, that there's this disconnect between the confidence levels and what consumers are actually doing. I think we're going to see something similar with businesses where business confidence is held up, but I don't think capital spending and some of those investments are following through. And what you were just listening to there, by the way, was not cheering and clapping for us, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. There were members of the U.S. armed forces yeah. entering the New York Stock Exchange during the opening bell yeah, this morning. Yeah. So I will just point that it out. It is Fleet Week. Yes, <laughs> yes it is. Um, and to bring it back to what you were saying, I think, which is a really important point, we've almost forgotten about what's going on beneath with the, the fundamentals. Yes. Not necessarily with the fundamentals, but with earnings season yes. in particular. I mean, if we look at what we got, the bearishness that we had coming into earnings yes. season for the, the larger cap stocks, they've beaten expectations. The yes. smaller cap stocks destroyed. destroyed. <laughs> Talk me through that too. Yeah, so it's very interesting and this is one of the things that we're trying to alert clients right. to, is that small cap stocks are typically much more correlated with the underlying health of the U.S. domestic economy. Right. Um, and the weakness here really, we think, um, illustrates the broader trend. So while some of the large cap multinational companies may be benefiting um, from some of the cross currents and some of the little bit stronger growth coming out of China, um, the smaller caps are not. And that's the U.S. domestic economy. It's very interesting because um, we spoke to Eric Rosengren of the Boston uh, Federal Reserve this week, and he said actually if you could take the trade situation out of it, actually, the underlying strength of the economy is 
it was, it's in pretty good shape. It looks pretty good at this yes. stage. And obviously the, the debate over inflation. And then I look at oil prices and I look at the impact of tariffs and yes. I think actually... You know, we could be quite dramatically surprised by inflation here. Absolutely. And this has been another one of our hypotheses at Morgan Stanley, um, is that everyone is so convinced that inflation is dead. That's exactly when you get the surprise, whether it comes from wages, it comes from commodities, it comes from tariffs, you know, or some other geopolitical event. Okay, so bottom line here, what should investors be doing? Um, so I think uh, now's the time to absolutely play defense yes. here. Um, so within the U.S. stock markets, we're, you know, kind of selling tech stocks and we're buying things like staples, like utilities, like energy wow. um, and Defenses. really playing it safe. Yeah. Do not get excitable in these markets. Not, not be, right be now. Careful. And particularly, as you said, the point as we head into the summer as well. And yes. perhaps a further rationalization. Sell in May. Oh, dear. <laughs> now you've done it. Lisa Shallot. Thank you so much for joining right. us. Good to see you, dear. The Chief Investment Officer there at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. All right, we are counting down to the market open this morning. A weaker open, as you can see, and you just heard there, avoid the tech stocks. Some of those we'll be discussing shortly, the likes of Qualcomm, Apple, of course, with that ruling yesterday, and, of course, Tesla, and the pressure continuing on that stock, too. Plenty more to come. Stay with us. You're watching First Move, and the open is next. Welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange. A vigorous ringing of the opening bell from members of the U.S. Armed Forces. Not enough to shake these markets into positive territory, though. We were expecting a lower open, and indeed, that's what we've got right now. The Dow, in fact, on track for five straight weeks of losses, though it is only Thursday session, remember. Continuing to keep an eye on what we're seeing in terms of the semiconductors as well, those stocks under pressure this month. The chip index has fallen some 13%. Context, though, everything still up some 16% year to date. But we have to see, as uh, Lisa Shallot was just mentioning there, of course, the CIO of Morgan Stanley, if this pressure continues to intensify, if we don't see a trade deal, then uh, watch this space. Flight to safety as well that I mentioned earlier on in the show going on in Europe, also happening here in the United States. We've got 10-year U.S. bond yields down to 2.35% right now. Okay, let me walk you through our global equity movers. Best Buy in focus, posting better than expected profits. More people using the subscription-based tech support and shopping online. Q2 sales and profits forecast also beat estimates. However, they didn't raise their full-year outlook. The CEO said the impact of tariffs at 25% will result in price increases and will be felt by U.S. consumers. All right, uh, right now up some 0.7%. Qualcomm also in focus. Some Mizuho securities downgrading the stock from buy to neutral. They're concerned over Wednesday's Financial Trade Commission, the FTC's ruling. The judge said the chipmaker violated antitrust laws. Qualcomm, of course, said it's going to appeal the ruling. We'll talk about this in a few moments, but down a further 3% right now. Tesla also in focus. Its stock has actually turned higher. It had been headed for a seventh straight day of losses this week. The list of Wall Street analysts concerned about its finances have been growing. The likes of Luke Ventures co-founder Gene Munster says Tesla will likely fall short of delivery expectations this year as the U.S.-China trade war worsens. He lowered his delivery estimates for uh, this year by some 10 percent, kicking off actually down half a percent. So it is chopping uh, 
chopping around a bit here. We'll continue to keep an eye on that. Now, kicking off what was a cascade, I think, of analyst reviews here, Dan Ives, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. And, of course, he cut his target price earlier this week. And uh, we discussed it the first time around, actually, and, and the challenge that the numbers presented. What do you make of what we've seen now from a whole host of analysts and actually a lot of bulls on the street turning far more concerned. I think the math doesn't lie. And when you look at what's happened with unit growth, I think whisper numbers are coming down across the street. And it comes down to that P word, profitability. Yeah. If they can't hit profitability second half, they're going to have to raise another one to two billion of capital. I think right now there's a lot of fear out there in terms of Tesla. Shorts are starting to press the name. But this is a huge white knuckle period for the name. Not evident before. I mean, I find, I agree that this quarter was alarming for a lot of people, but the bears here will go. Look, we've known this for a long time that the numbers here were really concerning, and it was pretty binary, one way or the other. Do you push back on that? Well, I'd say if you look at their guidance, you know, at first it kind of looked like there was numbers that they could ultimately hit, but the big thing is is on the expense side. Expenses are ratcheting up. If they can't hit profitability, I think that's why the bulls are now starting to get more and more nervous, just given what's happening with that debt load. That's the albatross around Tesla's neck right now. So ARK Invest, who remain long-term bulls, and we've spoken to them a number of times on this show, the likes of Kathy Wood, they came out yesterday and said, look, guys, take our models, have a look, input your own numbers, see what you think. We remain positive. We think that they've got enough cash. They're going to be cash flow positive for the rest of the year, given what they've raised in terms of cash. They were all talking about the trade-ins that we're seeing for the Model 3, the demand in the premium demand segment, but also pulling demand from mass market buyers as well. They gave all sorts of reasons, at least in the short term, to be more confident about what Tesla's doing here. Look, I mean, it all sounds good on paper, but I think at this point, there's maybe a better chance of me playing in the NBA than them hitting profitability in the second half. And that's the worry right here. I think investors are seeing through those numbers in the second half. The bonds, the spreads are not yes. lost. I mean, the bond, one of this is either the equity market or the bond market's wrong. And I think if you look what's happening, spreads blowing out. That's why right now, whisper numbers are coming down. And it's an ever-slight battle for them to hit those numbers in the second half. Still a transformational company, but this is a defining period for Musk and Tesla to navigate this near-term nightmare. Very quickly, how low do you think this price could go, given what you said about short activity, the pressure that we're seeing in the the credit, the bonds as well here, and, and the cost of credit, the cost of money effectively for this company rising quite dramatically? Yeah, right now it's kind of a blindfolded dark game in terms of where the stock could go lower because... From a valuation perspective, if they don't hit profitability in the second half, all bets are off. So I think that's why right now, this is definitely a period where they need to kind of get that demand up there. You need to see some tea leaves to have confidence, like some of you were talking about, in the second half. If not, you're going to start seeing more and more negative and numbers come down here. Let's move on and talk the chips. Qualcomm, what do you make of the FTC ruling yesterday? I feel like investors had breathed a big sigh of relief because of the settlement between Apple and Qualcomm. And now it feels, to your point again, and I'll use the phrase again, all bets are off. What do you make of this? I mean, when Apple settled with Qualcomm, it was viewed the FTC had a weak argument. And ultimately, this really came out of left field at exactly the worst time, given Huawei and the nervousness in the chip sector. It comes down to Qualcomm's the horse that the U.S. has bet on with 5G. Yes. It dents their model. It hurts 5G. Now, you could say over the long term, it could be positive. 
but it just throws another wrench what's happening in the supply chain right now. Yes. And that's really the issue. It came probably the worst time for tech investors, just adding to the odds with the Huawei situation. Tech investors and the U.S. government as well, because as you said, Qualcomm versus Huawei here, this is kind of the last thing you needed ultimately at this point in the, the sort of trade tensions, trade battle. Yeah, I can tell you, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, when this ruling came out, Pencils were snapped. Pencils were snapped because it gives ultimately less power in terms of what's happened with Qualcomm versus China and 5G with Huawei and ZTE and others. That's why right now, this is one where, this is a game of poker right now, but in terms of what happened with Qualcomm, it's a negative for stocks, it adds uncertainty, and it just further fans the flames of what's happened with the U.S.-China worries. Yes, Dan Ives. I'm Thank sure you. we'll be talking about both of these subjects more and more as we push on throughout the next few weeks. Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities, you. thank you so much. All right, let's move on now because uh, we're continuing to watch Boeing as well and their stock today. Boeing 737 MAX will be under intense scrutiny. Aviation regulators from around the world are meeting to discuss fixes for the model. That's following two deadly crashes, of course, that we've talked through continuously on this show. The American regulators will share its safety analysis, but said that it had no timetable yet for the jet's return to service. Drew, Drew Griffin joins us now with the details. Drew, 30 international regulators meeting today, but the acting head of the FAA already indicating that it could take far longer than anticipated to get these jets off the ground again. What do you think we hear today? Well, what we have learned is that software package that Boeing said was completed last week may have been a premature announcement, uh, Julia. That package has not yet been delivered to the FAA. So today here at FAA headquarters in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, with all of these global civil aviation partners, there is really nothing to present. The FAA is going to uh, tell these global uh, aviation uh, groups how it plans to certify the plane when Boeing presents that and also ask for feedback to make sure that the FAA, the U.S. authority, knows exactly what the global partners are looking for. But this, there is no timeline, as you said. Daniel Elwell, the acting administrator, is saying there is no timeline in the FAA. They're going to take as long as it takes. The bigger problem for Boeing may be trying to earn back the trust of the people who fly these planes, the pilots. Dennis Tager is with the Allied Pilots Association. They represent thousands of American Airlines pilots. He's a 737 MAX pilot himself. Listen to what he said just yesterday about getting back into the cockpit of the 737 MAX. The aircraft is grounded right now. But no, our pilots don't have confidence in the MAX as it was previously designed, the MCAS. The MCAS is the thing here. They're redesigning that, they're re-softwaring it to many of the things that we asked for. So we've got to see all those details. We're getting many of them and we like what we see. But yeah, our pilots, they're not ready to jump in the airplane now. Good gosh, no. Julia, Boeing has got to win back the trust of the pilots, of the flying public. The FAA here has to win back the trust of its global civil aviation partners, look for a, look for a bifurcated kind of approval process where the FAA eventually may approve this plane, but then the international partners would take their time to evaluate exactly what the FAA did to certify the 737 MAX. A long yeah. way to go. I don't think that timetable that we heard about in August is going to make it. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And I think probably the Chinese regulators will be right at the back of that queue. There's all sorts of things here. Drew, fantastic to have you with us. Drew Griffin there. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But the biggest election in the world turning into the one of the most incredible. Find out why as we head to India for the election latest. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And an election that affects one in eight people on the planet has ended in a landslide. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi has claimed victory, while the main opposition has conceded defeat. Sam Kiley is in New Delhi as we speak. And actually, we're showing you live pictures there outside Narendra Modi's party, the BJP's headquarters in New Delhi. As you can see, I can see rose petals being thrown at him his hands together, huge celebrations going on there. Sam, just explain how astonishing actually the victory and a landslide victory at that is for Namendra Modi at this moment. Well, it's quite a staggering scale, this victory. He was expected to win, judged by exit polls last Sunday, and indeed uh, what we were seeing in the early stage of the, of the polling. Now, none of the seats, or very few rather, of the seats, Julia, have been formally declared, but the Electoral Commission has been doing a running tally of the seats where the BJP is in the lead. Out of uh, 542, uh, they are now holding about 305, we understand, and uh, as part of their wider electoral alliance that would take them up to about 350 against the next major rival the congress party at 50 and their alliance being around 80 so it gives the modi camp a massive lead a really dominant hold now on indian parliamentary politics and um, builds on the majority that he won the first majority success in 2014 in about 30 years so he has emerged really as the an indomitable force now in Indian politics. The issue will be the extent to which his campaigning on a very strong Hindu nationalist line, whether he continues in that vein or whether he now feels sufficiently politically confident to be more liberal in his approach. Most commentators fear that he will actually probably harden his line. Very quick to uh, thank, uh, to congratulate him on this victory were fellow populist leaders Bibi Netanyahu and Vladimir Putin. Uh, Imran Khan of Pakistan, enemy, uh, India's longtime rival, even enemy, also quick to tweet that he congratulated uh, Mr. Modi and uh, said that he looked forward to peaceful uh, relations between the two countries. And of course, it was Modi's handling of a response to a what they said was a Pakistan-inspired terrorist attack in February, which led to Indian airstrikes deep inside Pakistani territory, which really gave him a political bump uh, in the polls. He had been dwindling a little, uh, particularly on economic issues, but he seems to have been able to uh, manipulate that into an enormous amount of electoral success, Julia. Yeah, quite fascinating, because if it had been about economic reform, perhaps it would have been a different story, as you point out. When the <laughs> dust and the confetti and the rose petals settle, what does the outlook look like for India? It's going to be fascinating to watch. Sam Kiley, thank you so much for that. All right, more to come on First Move. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move and a look at today's boardroom brief happening right now. U.S. Democratic presidential candidates are protesting alongside McDonald's employees across the country. This week, dozens of workers brought forward new allegations of workplace violence and sexual harassment. They're also demanding wages be raised to $15 per hour. The company is set to be grilled on all of these issues and more at its annual shareholder meeting today. Claire Sebastian joins me live now. Claire, lively to say the least. We know that Bernie Sanders, who's expected to be there too, has been a key proponent of a higher minimum wage here as well. What more can we expect? Yeah, uh, Julia, this is a serious escalation. These are allegations, not uh, sexual harassment, workers' rights, minimum wage. All of these things uh, is pressure that McDonald's has faced in the past, but a serious escalation today. And I think uh, a big part of that is the presence of these Democratic presidential candidates. It's not just Julian Castro that you see there in Durham, North Carolina. Jay Inslee, the governor, uh, will be out today as well. Uh, Bernie Sanders is holding a town hall, a live-streamed town hall with McDonald's workers. He has been, as you mentioned, particularly effective uh, in getting big companies to change their ways. Amazon, of course, raised uh, its minimum wage. It said it had listened to its critics, uh, including Bernie Sanders. Disney also raised the wage for, uh, for its theme park workers. So this is something that could uh, make the company really sit up today. Certainly uh, a very important frontier for these presidential candidates to, to get their message heard. We're just looking at the uh, times there. It says Durham, North Carolina. I thought they were based in Chicago. Have we had a location shift for this meeting as well? Well, we have. The meeting is actually in Dallas. It's in a hotel near Dallas-Fort Worth uh, Airport. That has raised some eyebrows because, uh, you know, people have suggested that the company might have been trying to avoid uh, protests which are happening in 13 cities uh, across the country, including Chicago and Durham, North Carolina, uh, that you see there. The company, though, uh, told CNN that they they did this simply to to encourage the participation uh, of more shareholders, whether or not uh, that is credible, uh, you know, when Chicago is also a good uh, airport hub is is another matter. But certainly uh, the pressure from workers, these lawsuits and these protests has been mounting ahead of this meeting. Yes, or avoiding activist wrath. You can take your pick, Claire Sebastian. Thank you so much for that. We'll continue to watch that throughout the day. All right, Amazon shareholders, meanwhile, rejecting a proposal for the company to stop selling facial recognition software to governments. There had been concerns over potential human rights violations, but investors rejected the proposals at the company's annual general meeting. Now it's a week of AGMs. Deutsche Bank shares falling to an all-time low ahead of their annual general meeting too. Investors, of course, wanting to know how Germany's biggest lender plans to move past its failed merger plans and, of course, money laundering probes too. Deutsche Bank, as you can see, off a further 2.8% in the session Thursdays. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, it doesn't rain, but it pours for Deutsche Bank. I mean, they've got a whole host of issues to deal with and Mm. very little clarity on the path forward here. And that's what everyone was really hoping to get from some of the speeches in the AGM today. And I'm not sure investors feel like they've really got the answer. And perhaps that's because there is no silver bullet to fix all of Deutsche Bank's problems. It's facing, frankly, a very fragmented banking market. It still needs to make huge cutbacks, but it also needs to grow revenue. It's got huge problems. You'll see at the share price there. It's at a 30-month low, a record low. It's not ideal for the CEO standing up 
uh, and delivering his speech. And I, you've got a feel for him. Let me uh, bring you what he said in the opening remarks, because he's fairly new still, of course, uh, Christian uh, Saving. He says, being the CEO is the full package. It's challenging and demanding. It's full of surprises. Now and then, it's highly emotional and sometimes also quite exhausting. You've got to feel very sorry for him. Big focus today. Uh, lots of far-reaching cuts, lots of cuts generally, particularly to investment banking. And more of a focus on the much less exciting, less sexy side of banking, global transaction banking. Julia? Yeah, the problem is as well, I'm just not even sure leadership change is the answer here, given the sheer quantity and the complexity of the struggles, mm. particularly the timing as well, if you look at the economics in, uh, in Europe. Particularly as what we're looking for at the moment from the AGM is the votes, which still haven't come through, I believe. And the key one, of course, is this really interesting one, normally a very boring part of a German AGM, which is whether or not um, shareholders uh, ratify what the board has done in the past year. Now, this was really interesting with Bayer, where we had over 50% of shareholders revolting and refusing to ratify the board's actions. We could potentially see the same today. Um, that would be very interesting. There have been moves uh, from some uh, advisory groups that they should vote against the board, particularly against the chairman who has been there for many years. He's one of the only constants on the board. So some people think that maybe that will help change. But as you say, it faces such huge problems here. It's going to take more than that. Yeah. Well, I wonder what a merger with another European partner might do. Or is that just still so toxic to the German government here that they won't allow it? Something's got to give here. Something's got to give, and particularly after the failure of Commerce Bank. And everyone wanted to know what the plan B or plan C was. And there wasn't a direct replacement. You know, there were discussions many, many months ago at potential other options out there in Europe. I feel like they all got ruled out. And the problem is it does face so many problems, particularly with the money laundering probes, lots of investigations. You know, potentially that brings big fines onto the table as well. So I'm not sure who would want to really approach Deutsche Bank at this stage. Yeah, I agree. And morale. Imagine a morale inside as well. Ouch, we watch. Watch for those votes. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for bringing us the latest on that. All right, as we're wrapping up the show, let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing as far as markets are concerned. We are right now accelerating to the downside. Some 1.5% for the Nasdaq, as you can see, lower there. Dow and the S&P 500 also looking set to add to the losses that we saw in yesterday's trading session. As I mentioned earlier on the show, we did bounce off the lows yesterday and closed off the lows. So the price action, again, something to watch important today. Let me give you a look as well at what we're seeing for the energy sector. Oil prices also coming under a bit of pressure. It fits with a broader risk-off sentiment that we're seeing the flight to safety and bonds. Right now, a WTI off almost 4%. So we'll watch that in the Express because I'll be back with you in a couple of hours' time. But for now, that's it for First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.